Hi, everybody. Woo, it's a beautiful day today, wasn't it? Oh, man, outstanding. Outstanding. Mm. I, it, it feels like it's been a long time since we last met like this. Um, I, uh, and the break was nice. Uh, um, but I'm going back to yesterday morning. And uh, when we left off, I, was, I, sh I shared with you some gifts that I feel like Lorraine gave me in her last few months on this earth. Um, and I'll take those with me for the rest of my life. Um, I realize I want to share one more gift that she has given me since she passed. And there are many. There are many instances. Um, but there's one, one story I want to share. Um, I think like a lot of people in grief, I, 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 I have wanted to see Lorraine in my dreams all the time. My kids and I talk about this. Did you dream about her? Did, you, did she talk to you in your dream? Um, and I, I shared a couple of days ago, I, I, there, there certainly have been moments. Um, I, I kind of have the sense that L Lorraine is indulging me in some visits, but also sending the message, you know, you know Burns, you, you, you know, you can do this. Um, you know, you got this. And I shared with you the dream where she was on a riverbank and she, she gave me a wink, right? That you got this. Um, there, is, there are other moments where it's been more clear that uh, she's helping me when I need some help. And that's what this story is about. I can even give you a date. It's December 15th, 2017, which would be about three months after she passed. And I can give you the date because it was the night before my oldest child's birthday. Lizzie was born on December 16th. And in 2017, this is the first Christmas season after Lorraine's passing. So everything is kind of fraught, you know. And in particular, on Saturday night, December 16th, in addition to being a day to celebrate my oldest child's birthday, first, first birthday after her passing, child's birthday. In addition to that, this was the day of our church's big Christmas concert, uh, which has become a really important tradition for the congregation, for the choir, for the community, for a bunch of my neighbors in other towns. In fact, my neighbor in Milton loves this concert. She's not a church person, uh, but loves this concert so much. She has created a, a, a party that happens after the concert at her house. Um, and Lorraine was a big part of this. This concert was actually a transplant from another group called Sweet the Sound that Lorraine and I used to sing in uh, with some other folks years ago. Um, and so a number of important solos that were Lorraine songs, you know. And, uh, and there was even talk, like, should we do this concert this year? My neighbor wanted, wanted to know, do, should we do, are you okay with this, Burns, doing the party? And I said, absolutely. 
I mean, Lorraine made that clear. Uh, you gotta, you gotta celebrate Christmas. You gotta do these things. So it was a big day to step into, um, in all, in all kinds of ways. And that night before, on December fifteenth, I had a dream. And dreams are weird, right? And in the weirdness of this dream, Lorraine and I were having lunch with a couple from Germany. Why Germany? I have no idea. It's a dream, right? At whatever level of inception. And in this dream, um, the couple expressed a need for new dinnerware. You know, it's a dream, right? And, I rem and in the dream, I was aware enough that it was a dream to know during the dream I don't know a German couple, let alone a German couple who needs dinnerware. <laughs> but my daughter Lizzie needs dinnerware. Oh, and in the dream, in the conversation, Lorraine had said, there's a box of dinnerware that we don't use anymore underneath the bed, like underneath our master bedroom bed. And so again, in the dream, I'm thinking, don't know who this couple is. Don't know who needs dinnerware except for my daughter, Lizzie. So when I wake up, I'm going to look under the bed. <laughs> and I woke up, and I remembered the dream, and I looked under the bed. And there was a box there. And I pulled it out. It was too small to have much dinnerware. <laughs> but I still, I took it up on the bed, and I opened it up. And what I found were lots and lots of photographs. And they were all photographs, and this is December 16th, Lizzie's birthday. They were all photographs from her first year. You know, pictures from the maternity ward um, and the next dozen months. In addition to the photographs, there was a journal. And I opened the journal and it was a journal Lorraine kept, beginning with, oh, I hope we can get pregnant, you know? As it took a little bit of time, and stories about seeing this doctor and that doctor, stories about a pregnancy test. And when that day came and there was a positive pregnancy test, she had a little sketch of, of the test, you know, the plus sign. And then all of her thoughts during those months of pregnancy, the names we were thinking of, we didn't know the gender. We named the fetus Chester. Um, we were listening to the band a lot at that point, and there's that verse in the song, The Wait, that says, wait a minute, Chester. That's what we would sing, you know. And then the, the day going into the hospital and the months after and, and breastfeeding and, and the names we considered and settled on. So on this morning of Lizzie's birthday, I felt like Lorraine visited me and celebrated that birth and that year with me. And for that, I was very, very grateful. And it got me through 
a challenging and beautiful day. A gift. So I'm going to turn a little bit now and the, give you a title and, and say what my real focus tonight is. It's a word um, that I've, it's kind of making the rounds right now. Um, and I've, I've heard it at a couple of gatherings in the last year. I'm going to see if you all have heard of it. Sawabona. Anybody heard of that? Sawabona. Okay. It's a greeting um, from some tribes in southern Africa, uh, Natal tribes. And it mean, it's, it's, it's a way to greet somebody. And literally it means, I see you. Okay. I see you. And then the response is Sikhana, which means I am here, which is connected to being seen and seeing the other. So again, to simplify, Sawabona, and you say Sikhana. Sawabona, Sikhana. Sawabona, Sikhana. Now you can already sense that this has a little JFO ring to it. And you can imagine the joy, you can probably picture a rhythm even, where we're, we're, we're seeing each other. And seeing God, you know. Um, and being seen. The challenge I want to lift up tonight, though, is not only seeing each other, and seeing each other's God-given dignity, in the safety of camp, but doing so out in the world. Particularly with people from different places who vote differently, who believe differently, who might even believe from your perspective the wrong thing, who look different, who come from other neighborhoods, who are just other with a capital O. Thinking about that kind of seeing each other has become a really, really important part of my own call and journey and growth. And that's what I want to explore tonight. I'm going to need your help, and I'm going to need God's help. So let's pray. Gracious God, please touch my words. Please touch our hearts. Please, please touch these paths that we are on. That tonight each of us would know something more of your call and word that each of us would know more of your love. Amen. I need a song and here it is. I trust you've done this before. Over my head, you know that, right? Over my head 
I hear music in the air over my head. I hear music in the air over my head. I hear music in the air. There must, there must be Amen. And a story before I share my scripture for the night. Um, the story is, this one's just a few weeks old. This happened in the sanctuary of my church. Um, as I mentioned before, there is a Department of Mental Health group home down the street. And there's a woman from that community, I'm going to call her Caroline. And uh, I've seen Caroline around more recently. Um, I'll see her in the neighborhood. Um, and for a number of weeks, she's been coming, uh, coming to church early when we have uh, coffee out and day-old Dunkin' Donuts uh, from the Dunkin' Donuts down the street. I mentioned that store before, yeah. They, they, every weekend, they give us their the day-old donuts, and the word is out, and Caroline comes, um, but not for church, not for worship. Um, but that changed. Maybe, a, uh, I'm losing track of weeks, a month ago, call it, five weeks ago. And she'd come for a little bit of church, and a little bit more church. And just a few weeks ago, she actually sat in the front pew and was there, you know, for the whole worship service, but periodically sitting in the front pew, she would shout angry things. I'd seen her doing that down the street once, but it wasn't a regular thing. I learned after the, this episode that I'm about to describe that she had shared with my colleague that she has Tourette's syndrome. We didn't know that at the time. All we knew is that Caroline was in the front pew kind of shouting out angrily, sometimes with curses. And, and our folks are pretty good at rolling with whatever. We were, you, we, we, we were rolling um, and made it through the choir piece and, you know, with a couple of angry shouts, and that was okay. And then there was a prayer time, still the shouts every once in a while, a hymn. Um, and then I was up front, and I, I preached from down there, you know. And... Uh, wondering what to do. Now, at this point, some, some good folks had mobilized. We have some folks trained in social work that had sat next to her. We also have a woman uh, from a Pentecostal African-American church tradition. Churches where you'll often have you know, nurses pretty much dressed in, in white, ready to sit next to folks if, if, if they got the spirit. And, and Geraldine had come over to sit next to to, to her, her sister, Caroline, as well. I felt like we had our bases covered, right? We had social workers and we had, had a prayer warrior. We were all there, right? Um, and, um, but still, it got to that time, and I was about to preach, and, and, and she was agitated. Um, and I wasn't sure what to do, but then decided to just ask. I said, Caroline, would you like me to pray for you? 
I wasn't sure if she was going to say blankety blank you or what, you know. Um, I said, Caroline, would you like me to pray for you? And she said, yes. And I prayed for her. She looked at me in the eyes. And I prayed for her. And she settled down. And she was quiet the rest of the service. Now I've, as you can imagine, debriefed this with friends and members and colleagues, other ministers, including a group of ministers I had some time with last week at another gathering. And I certainly consider it an important and profound moment of prayer in my life. But my colleagues who were being introduced to Sawabona as I was said, you know, in addition, maybe it was a moment of Sawabona. A moment when somebody up front was saying, Caroline, I see you. And she said, I'm here. And I don't mean to say that is instead of prayer. I, am, I mean to say, I believe in this case, that is part of prayer. It is a part of being with God. It is a part of being with the pulse. It is a part of making that music over our heads. Seeing each other, being seen. Reading that I want to share tonight, and there are a bunch to choose from, is from Luke 17. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten lepers approached him. Keeping their distance, they called out, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were made clean. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He prostrated himself at Jesus' feet, and he thanked him. And this man was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, Were not ten made clean? But the other nine, where are they? Was none of them found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. May God add a blessing to our hearing of his word. There is a lot about this text um, that is wonderful, like so many texts, so many layers, so many points. There's a huge point to be made about gratitude. Today, our prayer group shared gratitude. That's all in line with that passage. There is also another point to be made just about healing. There is a point to be made about seeing the lepers and being seen. But what I want to draw your attention to most right now is that this one person 
who express gratitude, this person that made it worth the while for the writers of the gospel to put this down is a Samaritan. Now, I can't say for sure in this room, but I know if I go throughout our society and say, do you know what a Samaritan is? Most folks will say, oh, that's somebody from biblical times who did a good deed. Even nonprofits carry that name. That's what Samaritan means, somebody who did a good deed. But that's not what it meant in Jesus' time. What it meant was a foreigner. What it meant was somebody from Samaria, which is a different region from Jesus' home turf of Judah. It's a place not only with folks that are foreigners and alien and different, it's people that are there as a result of a schism 100 years before who the folks in Judah would agree believe the wrong thing. They can talk about one God the way we talk about God, but they do it the wrong way. They worship the wrong way. They pray the wrong way. They don't go toward Jerusalem. They're wrong. They're foreign. They're alien. So there's an important message that the gospel writer has given us today. Sometimes it's the foreigner. At least once he's seen who sees Jesus and does the right thing. Now you can go through your Bible Rolodex and realize this isn't the only time that Samaritan pops up. We know the story, the story that Jesus taught about the Good Samaritan is reminding us to be good, to care for our neighbors, to be a neighbor to the person who is broken and hurting on the side of the road. But Jesus is saying something in addition to that, I believe. Jesus is saying, shake your assumptions. Insider number one, insider number two, the priest and the Levite, Notice that they don't do the loving thing. Person number three, the foreigner, the outsider, the one who believes wrong. He's the one who's living the law that matters. And there are more stories. The story when Jesus himself encounters a Syrophoenician woman and she's looking for help. And in, that's in the Gospel of Ma and Mark. In the Gospel of Matthew, it's Canaanite. But in either case, outsider, Gentile, stranger, believing the wrong thing. And she's looking for help. And at first, Jesus, not our favorite time of Jesus, says, no, I'm not here for you. I'm here for the children of Israel, not, not the dogs. And she says, even the dogs deserve crumbs. And there's an encounter there. I want to think of it today as a Sawabona encounter where Jesus sees her. And she says, I am here. And Jesus I'm a Christian. For me, that means I follow Jesus. I use that, uh, a definition I learned from the daughter of Albert Schweitzer many, many years ago when I was fortunate to get to spend on a retreat, a weekend with her. And I, I asked Reina, you know, I know your dad was an amazing musician, great organist, 
great student of Bach, great student of the New Testament, amazing humanitarian, amazing doctor, and winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. Tell me about his faith. And she said, it was simple for my father. She said this in a German accent, which I'm not going to begin to imitate. My father believed that every person stands at the lake shore and has a moment when the master comes and asks them, will you set down your net and follow me? For my father, being a Christian, meant putting down his net and following the master. That has stuck with me ever since, and that's how I, that's how I think of my discipleship. I'm doing my best, my own cracked pot best, my own grieving best, my own best to follow. And I know this may be some, maybe stretchy for some of us, but it's, but it's camp. Stay with me and, and let it go if you need to let it go. But I have come to believe through my work and my ministry and my life and my relationships that part of Jesus for me is being open, profoundly open, maybe even radically open to these others, capital O, along the way, including people who vote differently than I do including people who read different books and watch different news stations than I do, including people who believe differently than I do, including people who just don't get the God thing at all. I believe, as I look at the Gospels, that Jesus was being open to these strangers and encountering them and and seeing them in a way that nobody else was even trying to see. And they were seen and they were touched and they were healed. It's not just Samaritans. Think of the centurion. This is a soldier from the Roman Empire. The empire was nasty to Jews. And Jesus saw a faith. Jonathan Sachs is Jonathan Sachs is the chief or has been the chief rabbi in the United Kingdom. And he says, he wrote this maybe 10 or so years ago, but I, I quote it all the time because I think it's so true. Still, the greatest spiritual mission of our age is to see the reflection of God in those who are not the reflection of me. The greatest spiritual mission of our age is to see the reflection of God in those who are not in the reflection of me. I encouraged us at the very first talk to, be, to, to think about marveling even in places beyond the Grand Canyon, in places beyond Notre Dame, in, cases, in places beyond Winnie's JFO, um, 
even the Dunkin' Donuts down the street. I don't have a Dunkin' Donuts street here beyond the time I took Morgan there to get his, his egg sandwich and coffee and donut. But um, I do have a story from Walgreens. Next best thing. Okay. Um, and this is a year ago. Um, yeah, a year ago. And I was on my way to Lassen for camp. And when I go to Lassen, if possible, I like to visit some college friends in Tiburon in Northern California. And um, I, I, I'll spend Friday, Saturday with them. And on Sunday morning, I like to go to the Presbyterian Church in Marin City, I think. Um, but it's a Presbyterian church that reminds me of my own. It's also the Presbyterian church where Annie Lamott is a very regular active member. She's always there. Um, and uh, um, so it's, it's just, I, I love going there. In this case, I, I did what I do. I saw my friends. I, I went to the Presbyterian church. And then I had to go to Walgreens to get a few things for camp. And I was in line to check out, um, and uh, the man at the checkout counter really had this remarkable presence. Um, and in fact, right in front of me were two teenage boys, two brothers, that, uh, who, who had with them their father. And my impression from just hearing a little bit of the conversation is they brought their father into Walgreens to meet this checkout guy because they really appreciated his presence and his manner. And it was an honor, I understood, for his father to meet this man who had made such an impression on his adolescent sons in Marin County, you know. Um, so anyway, then it was my turn. And I went up, and he was very gracious to me. He says, hello, my name is Mohammed." I said, well, hello, my name is Burns. And he proceeded to do his work. You know, he didn't want to hold up the line too much. Um, but did manage to say, I, and I am, I am from India. I said, and I'm from Iowa uh, via Boston, you know. Um, and, and it was a wonderful, if brief, exchange. And it came time for him uh, to ask if I had my frequent flyer card, whatever they call those things, those reward cards. And I said, well, I don't have it, but I'll give you my phone number. I gave him my phone number. He puts it up, pulls it up. And he looks at it and says, ah, Lorraine Stanfield. And I said, that's, that's the right record. Actually, that's my wife, and, and she died six months ago. And he just paused. And he looked at me in the eye. And he said, I'm so sorry. I will pray for you. And I said, thank you. And he gave me my receipt. And I said, you know, peace be with you and with you. It was a very short exchange, my time with Mohammed. But I felt he saw me. And he made space for me, I think, to see him. In addition to pastoring Fourth Church in South Boston, these last many years, I've become very, very involved um, with a group called the Greater Boston Interfaith Organization, or GBIO. In fact, I've been president for several years now, and that's put me in a place to make some and build some incredible relationships and meet some incredible people. I have to say, I got involved in community organizing um, 
because it was a way for me to act out of my Christian values in a public arena. I got involved with GBIL because it was a way for me to, um, to work on issues that mattered to people that I loved in my church and in my neighborhood. And the way organizing, this kind of organizing works is different congregations of different traditions get together and there's a big, big focus on building relationships within your communities but also in between. And that's how you build power, the capacity to act. So together, years ago, we worked so that there would be access to health care for all residents of Massachusetts. Together, we worked to increase, to, 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 to get the legislature to pass um, a, a fund to support affordable housing. Although, <laughs> in the wake of that, 10 years later, it's kind of a drop in the bucket, but we're working on it again. Um, it, you know, out of that, that capacity building, we act. Two years ago, the big focus was criminal justice reform because our criminal justice system is, has been messed up. And we won kind of a landmark overhaul with the governor's, a Republican governor's blessing um, that we think make thing, made things better. Now I can get into wonky details if anybody wants to afterwards because I have an inner wonk, you know, and I kind of like some of this policy stuff. But even with all these things we work on, education, a new STEM school in the city of Boston, healthcare reform. When I go back, we're working on something new with the legislature to try to rein in some prescription drug costs, which are, which are crazy if you have to get EpiPens or insulin or some other things. Um, that's what initially got me in, but what hooked me on the way were the relationships and meeting these people that I wouldn't have met otherwise. And as president, I've been involved with this clergy group that includes the imam from the largest mosque in New England and, and several rabbis and other Christian leaders, um, a, a, a wonderful AME pastor named Ray Hammond that lots of people know about and hear about, um, and other folks, and we meet regularly. And because we have those relationships, we've been drawn into a public square when things are getting kind of frayed in our community. So after the Boston Marathon bombing, after we learned that it was two very misguided Muslim young men who made that happen, it was really important to rally and be present with our Muslim brothers and sisters. So the first day that mosque opened, it was important for me to be there and to say words to that congregation. And I could speak to that congregation. I knew how it was scary because I had been scared before. Once upon a time when our congregation sent our young people on a civil rights pilgrimage, something we do every few years, and our young group of young people happened to include a Cambodian-American boy, a Chinese-American youth director, um, black youth, white youth, me, um, and there was a picture in the local paper, we got a bomb threat. Like you see in a bad movie where people cut out letters from a newspaper and paste them on a letter and stick it into our mailbox. Didn't, it wasn't, I don't think it was a real serious threat, but the police came by with their dogs and it was frightening. And it meant the world to me that when we gathered for worship and all our folks came, we weren't gonna stay away from Sunday worship. 
We were joined by African-American leaders and Jewish leaders who knew something of what it meant to have that kind of threat. They worshiped with us. And I shared that, I shared that with the mosque, with the congregation, just to say, we, I want you to know that I'm with you and we are with you. We see you. Well, that, that feels like moons ago, right? 2013. The last couple of years, sad to say, there are more moments like that. In 2016, as rhetoric was heating up, we decided we needed, we needed to come together. And we came together, Jewish and Christian and Muslim leaders, and we asked our people to fast all day. And the, the mosque hosted us at sundown and gave us a meal to break the fast. We had 300 people there. I actually had a bunch of my seminarian students with me, and they were Greek Orthodox. And one of the fascinating things to see was the Greek Orthodox Christians coming into this space and seeing how many Muslim practices were like their own, the beads they held, the importance of fasting, lots of things that were in common, probably in small part because both religions kind of grew around the same century. But later in, two, well, later in 2016, when there was more concern and more, we said, we just have to come together. We brought 3,000 people into the mosque and a senator and a mayor. In fact, all the politicians wanted to join us. We limited it to two. Um, and we had people, a man from my congregation, who, who voted for the president. As you can imagine, the crowd tended to be people who voted the other way, but we felt like it was really, really important to have, to have that voice there. And he spoke. And then there's after the Charlottesville shooting, which happened to be, not shooting, but the Charlottesville debacle. Um, and we gained together. That time the governor joined us. And that one was in a temple. And then we gathered after the Pittsburgh shooting on the common and again at the temple. And I'm, I'm sorry there's so many of these. I'm so sorry. It breaks my heart. But I thank God that we have these relationships because we're able to mobilize and get our congregations together and be together and just say to each other, we see you. And what I want to say, let me say, I see this as part of my own Christian walk. I believe that these encounters and these relationships and this work help me as a Christian. And I want to be clear with that. When I fasted, that was at the suggestion of Muslim leaders, because fasting is very important. And I fasted, and, and, and it was really powerful for me to fast and to pray and to break the fast in community. But here's the thing. You know, it's not like fasting is alien to the Christian tradition, right? Even for Presbyterians, we have fasting, right? But I hadn't done it. Which is why I can say now, I became a better Christian because of my relationship with Muslim friends. 
I can say the same thing about my Jewish friends. I can say the same thing about my Catholic friends, of course, and all sorts of other traditions. The Pentecostal lady that sits in my pew every, every week. There's just so much we have to learn from each other. There's so much, so many ways we can grow. And I, I, I want to lift up, I'm going to watch the clock here, but I have a couple examples I, I, want, I want to lift up here. One of these is my relation, our relationship with Roxbury, um, Roxbury Presbyterian Church. Um, Roxbury, predominantly African-American neighborhood. Uh, South Boston, historically white Irish, uh, resisting busing. If you're from Boston, you know the story. The current pastor there is Reverend Liz Walker, um, who's a dear colleague. And some of you will know that name because she's kind of a local celebrity. She was chair, uh, anchor woman of the of, uh, a Boston news station. But then she went to seminary, then, and she was ordained African Methodist Episcopal, but from there became Presbyterian and pastors our sister church. So we get to do a lot together. We do a post-traumatic healing ministry together. Um, we meet, we work together in GBIO, we work on education questions together, and we, um, a few years ago, decided that we ought to celebrate Easter together. Sunrise service. There's a place not far from my church called Carson Beach. In the heyday of the busing crisis in Boston, it was a place where riots took place because it was kind of on the border of a white area and a black area. Fight. So we decided that's where we're going to celebrate the resurrection. And we've now done it three years in a row, and we're going to continue. We gather there, and we praise, and we pray, and we celebrate the sun that comes up over the water, and the sun that means so much to us. In fact, our next weekend, our churches are getting together to sing some of my original music and some of their musical director's original music. Again, if you're in town, this is the night before the Hootenanny, come to the concerts at Fourth Church. Another story, right in the hall of our church. Um, as you know, uh, we have a lot of recovery groups that meet, 12-step groups. There's a Saturday night Narcotics Anonymous group that meets in the basement. This group is mainly kind of classic Southie, um, you know, kind of got an Irish look to them, uh, have lived some life, and doing the steps, you know, to be in recovery. They're in the basement. But on this particular Saturday night that I'm thinking, and this was a few months ago, um, we had something else going on upstairs. Many of our members are from Cameroon, and one very, very important member um, named Franco, uh, his mother had died back home in Cameroon, and he wanted a memorial service here in, in Boston. Um, and we said, sure, you can do that here. Now, as it turns out with a Cameroonian event, this, this memorial service was not very long, but the memorial I mean, the actual service part when we were in the, in the, uh, in the sanctuary. Some words, some music, some, some prayers. But the, the whole celebration was, oh, I don't know, eight hours. There's people gather. They bring tons of food. There must have been 100 folks coming in, in the hall. And at some point, there's lots of dancing. That kind of, you know, that dancing that Tanya was showing us. And they were wearing traditional garb. So at some point in the evening, they're dancing around. To the, to, the, to the music they brought from Cameroon, going around and have plenty of food, and the NA group comes from the basement. 
And they start to walk and they see this. And there's a guy in my congregation who's very close to Franco, also a true Southie guy. Um, I will call him Ted. And, and the way Ted tells the story is, I saw those guys coming up and I recognized the look in their eye. I am they, you know, white, Irish, in recovery, what's going on here? My worlds were colliding. So he went up and he invited them. And people, of course, said, yes, have food, have food. And then within a few minutes, all these folks that emerged from the Southie recovery group were in, in this circle dance with all these folks from Cameroon. You know, and so there were the Southie folks in their dungarees and whatever, and then the Cameroonians in their traditional garb doing this dance and eating this food. I don't even know the name of the food. And for a few shining moments, I saw each other. This gets very personal for me. I mean, all these stories are very personal, but I want to add my, um, my own story with Lorraine, who, of course, I'm remembering all week. Lorraine and I met at the end of college, just in time, six weeks before I graduated. Well, we met before, but we started dating just six weeks before I graduated. And, you know, within a couple of dates, it was feeling really wonderful for both of us, I, can, I think I could say. And... I, in a conversation, um, I shared that I was thinking of becoming a pastor. And she said, oh crap. <laughs> Actually, it was a different word, you know. <laughs> um, and she was not from the church. This was not important to her. And she certainly had not imagined herself as a pastor's wife. And we realized, okay, this is gonna be something to talk about for a while. And we had our long distance relationship for a few years, and then we were in the same city, and she was in med school, and I was at divinity school. And, and you know, it was between meeting and getting married, or between dating and getting married, I think it was eight years. It was a long courtship. And there was a lot of, for both of us, thinking this through but obviously made the commitment. And there, there are more details I could give you to flesh this out, but if I were to fast forward it, what I can tell you is that by the end, um, Lorraine was so important to my church, and my church was so important to her. I definitely can say, and I don't know that I figured, I realized this at the time, but in the wake of it all, I see it so clearly. I was a better pastor because of her. I learned healing arts from her. I learned presence from her. She was present to my people, even though she was working two, two jobs elsewhere. There are people in my church now who are members and committed members because Lorraine invited them. There are people in my choir because Lorraine was the evangelist for the alto section. And when she was dying and we were talking about her funeral, I said, where, you know, where should we have this? And she said, well, it's got to be at Fourth Church. I said, 
honey, Fourth Church holds maybe 200 people, and you're going to have way more than that. She says, but it's home. It's home. So we set up our Cracker Jack technology crew on figuring out a way to live stream, and we basically created a second for the funeral, a, like a second sanctuary in the back hall, the same place where the Cameroonians and the Southie guys were doing their circle dance, you know. That became another auditorium with a big screen, and we set up another screen in a restaurant down the street and, you know, handled the 500 or so people that came, 600. Um, but the point was it was home. That's what I wanted to share. And I, I came up with a new realization just today, thanks to the gift of JFO and the gift of creative's time. In our writing, we were prompted to think of a time we had experienced forgiveness. And I realized that while in my writing time, when I spent more time crying than I did writing, in full honesty. I realized that while I have thought about forgiveness at this cosmic level, either intellectually or even emotionally, when we sing the old hymns, certainly I thought of forgiveness, my forgiveness in God and Jesus forgiving me. I'd thought of all that, but I, I never thought about when a person had forgiven me. And what I immediately went to was a time when I needed to be forgiven by Lorraine. And she did forgive me, really making possible the rest of our life together. And that was a startling thing to realize. One more way that I learned about the divine from her. And what's more sacred than the experience of forgiveness? Friends, there is one more story, a short story from a few years ago. We do music and art lessons at our church. And one of our piano teachers is this woman um, from Albania. She came over when the Iron Curtain went down. And she's quite a teacher. She was trained in the Russian school, which means she's fierce and strict and a disciplinarian. But she loves us. And she loves us. She's been teaching, I don't know, 15, 20 years with us right now. And as you can imagine, not all folks in American culture want to have a piano teacher like that for their kids. You know, we've had to tell her, no, you can't whack the fingers. We don't do that. Anymore. You know, we don't do that. But there are people that really like her as a teacher. It, the families that like her as a teacher tend to either be immigrant families or Marines. We had both. And the, um, we, have, we have a couple of recitals every year. And there's always a recital uh, in December, like second or third weekend. And oh my gosh, you know, I mean, it's, church is so busy that time of year. And I'm often thinking, it, the, the recitals on a Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock, 
I, I can just barely keep my eyes open by Sunday at 4 o'clock, especially in the, in the middle of Advent with so much going on. I direct the children's musical theater program. We had just done our show the weekend before. I'm just kind of... But, but I won't say her name, but our Albanian Russian trained um, boot camp instructor insists that I be there. She wants her pastor to be there. Um, and, and so I'm there. And I'm there for this one recital a few years ago. And it's right when I'm busy with the interfaith work because there's so much going on in society and, and it's so frustrating to see the divisiveness that's growing and that we're having to respond to and say, we love each other. Come on, people. I'm, I'm weary of that. I'm weary of, of just everything. But, and I figure, okay, I'll go to the recital. I just, it's just an hour. I can get through this for my dear, beloved Albanian sister in Christ, you know. And maybe a third of the way through the recital, I'm just kind of looking at the list of names and all the kids there and realizing, oh my gosh, this child, this, this, this child is from China. I, I mean, we used to call China our enemy. Maybe we still call China our enemy. Oh, oh, this, this child, her family's from Vietnam. We, we were at war there. This family is from Albania. They're like part of the Soviet bloc. This family, Guatemala, we were at war there too. Oh, this family, they're, they're a Muslim family from Eritrea. Oh my gosh. Look at all these kids. And I realized we had the children of our enemies making this beautiful music filling our church and at that point I realized there's no other place in the world I'd rather be than right here and technically we're listening to the music of, of Rachmaninoff and Mozart and Beethoven really amazing pieces of music that the children of our enemies are creating. Technically, I'm listening to all these classics, but what I'm really, what I'm really hearing is that old, old spiritual. It's over my head, I hear music in the air. Over my head, I hear music in the air over my head. I hear music in the My Christian walk has put me in a place where it's my privilege to try to help people who think they're different from each other be together. And as God is my witness, I'll use whatever tool I can. Piano recital, political organizing, fasting, prayer, and building relationships one at a time. 
Because I'm convinced that the Jesus way means we have to see each other. No matter the race, no matter the class, no matter the neighborhood, no matter the creed, no matter the right or wrong belief, no matter whether the person is Syrophoenician or Canaanite or Eritrean or Samaritan. Sawabona. I'm going to give you the word again. Sanakim. Sawabona. Or as my dad would say, Alleluia. Amen.